All right, last week, and this is not just for your sake, but last week we spoke about gathering stones, didn't we? Uh, Stones that would be a monument once they're gathered together to the reality that there are three things. The first thing was we have a God who does great things, right? That's what those monuments were meant to speak about. People would see them, Dad, what's that big pile of stones there for? Well, the first thing was, hey, we've got a God who does great things, all right? Number two, the whole world should know about that. The whole world should know that we have a God who does great things. And thirdly, so that we don't forget about it because we are so frightfully forgetful. We need things like communion every week because we forget. We need the tangible reminder. And whether that's a metaphorical stone or it's a wedding ring or a house or something physical in your life, really it's not the point. The point is what is it that's in your life that you can point back to and say, look at how God has been faithful. Now, I thought of another sermon in this series while we were doing worship, open worship together. I was going to get up. I'm already getting up this morning. Um, But it struck me, Luke asked people to share some of the things that have happened. That's past tense, right? What are some of the things that have happened in your life that you can point back to? And it's quite possible this morning, in fact I would say it's quite probable this morning in a room this size, there's a few of you sitting here this morning and just thinking, I'm not sure that I've got a stone to put in that pile, but I'm, I'm hoping that there will be one day. There's some things that I'm trusting God for in the future, his faithfulness that, I, that I'm yet waiting on. And it struck me that when David went out to battle Goliath, he chose five stones. He put them in his pocket. We only know the story of one of those stones. Right? There were four more. Maybe this morning, this is a time for you to be gathering stones to put into your pocket, believing and hoping that one day, one day that stone's going to have a story to tell. All right? Another sermon for another day. All right. When we talk about the stones that we, we spoke about last week, um, we were reading from the account of Joshua, just to jog your memory. And the moment that God's children walked, uh, do you remember, finally into the promised land after 400 years of enslavement in Egypt, after 40 years of wandering around in a desert, whinging about how they would rather eat the onions that were back in Egypt, amongst other things. Um, they They were certainly happy to whinge. During those 40 years that they wandered, God had made a covenant, do you remember, with those people, saying that you are going to be my people and I'll be your God. And a binding contract of relationship was forged. God promised to be with them. And as a representation of that promise or that covenant, of the favour and the presence of God, God had instructed Moses to build a special chest, a special box, 
There are three chapters, if you were to look it up in the Bible, of instructions on how this chest should be built, how it should be decorated, what should be on it, what should be in it, the type of timber to be used. In it were the tablets of the law that were scribed on the top of Mount Sinai. Um, amongst a bunch of other sacred items that were placed in there. It was then decorated with gold. There were ornate statues of angelic beings that were rested on top of it. And everywhere the people went, the tabernacle, as it was called, or more commonly known as the ark, went before them, carried by the priests. And the thing is, this ark was not just a symbol. God actually spoke to Moses from within the ark. And when it was set up in the tent of meeting, it was a special tent the ark was placed into, whenever it was set up in the tent of meeting, God's presence was seen resting on it by the people and it's a very mysterious thing. It's like this mysterious cloud which the people called the Shekinah glory of God. Now, unfortunately, most people's knowledge of the significance of the ark is more formed by this guy, right? Classic, classic, all right? We, we know more about the ark probably from that movie than actually reading about it in the scriptures. We could change that, right? Um, God tells us about himself more than what Indiana Jones has to say. And it's a big story, but, but we need to break it down probably to the most important part this morning. The ark was the most significant and precious item for the entire nation. The ark signified God's presence and blessing and it gave them confidence that God was leading them and it provided a reminder about all that God had done in the past, right? So in short, for the people of Israel, where the ark was, God was. That's how important it was for them. Now, last week, we talked about them crossing into Gilgal, alright? There's a map up there, you might be able to see some of it. They were in the uh, desert country on the other side of the river, and they crossed over, remember, Joshua arrived at the river, the river was in flood, and God said, get the priests to carry the ark, and when their feet hit the flooded water, the water's going to bank up. You're going to cross over into the promised land on dry ground. And while you're doing that, pick up 12 stones. And when you get into Gilgal in the promised land, then you're going to pile those stones up and they will be a monument to the fact that God does great things. The whole world needs to hear about it and you should never forget about it. Okay? Now, soon after crossing the Jordan and the monument had been built in Gilgal, came the... Uh, Infamous battle of Jericho. The walls come tumbling down. Followed by the almost more infamous battle of Ai, where the people of Israel said, man, that, that battle went so easy. God was with us. 
we got this. Let's just go up to AI and smash them as well. And of course, they had to turn with their tails between their legs. They got beaten badly. And we're wondering what's going on. Another story, another sermon, another day. Well, following all of that became then the slow conquest of the promised land. It took years and years, almost a single generation, to complete the entire conquest of the promised land. But throughout that entire period, the tabernacle had moved from Gilgal, where it is, up to the north, to a town by the name of Shiloh. There's a spot there, you can see it on the map. Now, if this little video works, we'll play a little video, alright? Alright, let's speed up the timeline. 329 years, the ark rested in Shiloh, right? And although the Israelites eventually conquered the land, they didn't really control it. Um, Other nations rose up, other nations tried to push the Israelites back out. One such nation who weren't local inhabitants to the area, they were themselves invaders, were the Philistines. Uh, These people did things that were detestable to the Lord, including the sacrifice of their children to their false god by the name of Dagon. And they were fierce warriors, And Israel had centuries of problems with the Philistines. They were deeply affected by their worship and they were often led away from worshipping the one true God themselves as they forged alliances with the Philistines. Now eventually, in a desperate move to kind of invoke God's favour on their life, God's help in battle against one of these Philistines, the ark was taken into the battlefield. But Israel was defeated and the ark was lost. Let me read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 4. You can turn to 1 Samuel, we're going to be there shortly. But 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10 says this. It says, So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. Get that? 30,000. The ark was captured. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. things, Things did not go well, though, for the Philistines when they won that battle and they took the ark of the covenant. They took it back to their home territory. In fact, they took it back to their capital city. They thought that it would be an amazing symbol of their dominance over the Israelites. Let's take back the Ark of the Covenant and we'll put it on display in our temple. But in every town that it entered, plagues and death followed it. In fact, their idols would fall over in the middle of the night and in the morning when the Philistines came out, they would find their idols fallen over, lying on their face before the tabernacle. After seven months of moving it from one city to the next in the Philistine region, they'd had enough of this, so they decided they would take the ark back to the Israelites. Seven months of plagues, death and all of their idols falling over, they're just like, "This this this is not good, let's take the ark back. And so that's what they did. 
they carried it back to the borderlands between their nations and the Israelite nations, and they said, here, have your ark back. So in chapter 7, we're going to pick up this story, and we're going to read a bit of it together, and and then make a couple of points of reflection about it. So the people of, uh, this is chapter 7, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. So the people of Kiriath-Jerim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and they consecrated the son, his son Eleazar to take care of it. All right, so the, the, the ark has come back from the Philistine control, taken back to this border city of Kiriath-Jerim and the people there were like, okay, we've got, we got to look after this ark now. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Asherahs that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship him only. Then he'll rescue from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtaroths and only worshipped the Lord. Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. And when they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, We've sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up towards Israel. And when the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out the Lord our God for us, so that he will save us from the Philistines. And then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached the fight against Israel. And the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below Bethkar. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. I want to talk a little bit about this stone called Ebenezer. Um, I think there are four lessons that we can learn from this event in 1 Samuel 6. Last week we talked about stones, 12 of them that were piled up. Here we hear about just one stone. Just one stone that Samuel placed down in the field, wasn't even in one town, just out in the middle of open somewhere. He placed down one stone, and this stone has a name. He says it's called Ebenezer. I want to make four lessons that I think we can take from this event. 
um, four lessons, and really they're about repentance. That's what this story's really about. So here's the first one. Real repentance begins with a longing for God. Real repentance begins, its starting point is a longing for God. Go back and have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. Just a single verse. It picks up the story that the ark had been taken back to the border town, remember? And, and it, let, it just rested there for 20 years. There were people looking after it. It wasn't back in Shiloh again, but it just stayed in this little border town with people looking after it. But 20 years had gone by, it says, since the... The ark had returned back from the Philistines. So chapter 7, verse 2, time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. I think we often mistakenly think repentance is about being sorry for something wrong we've done. And it is that, but before it can really be about sorrow, it must actually first be motivated by a longing for God. Something has been fractured in our relationship with him. Something has occurred and our relationship has changed. Either with God, this is also true of our relationships with one another that something occurs and it fractures something and it's altered now. And we live with it for long periods of time sometimes. An altered relationship. But repentance grew out of the rich soil of missing the one who had been grieved. The Israelites had had a relationship with their God where he said, you will be my children and I will be your God. And something had occurred in the past where the children, Israel, had rejected their God, abused him as their father. They had pursued other gods. They had forged relationships with lesser gods, false gods. They had done the wrong thing, absolutely. But I love the fact that in chapter 7, verse 2, we see that something had returned in their heart. And it wasn't just, oh, I'm so sorry for setting up idols in my house. It was, I long for you, God. I long for a relationship that I once lost, that I once had, and I want it again. So, the first thing I want you to note is that real repentance begins with a longing for God. Here's the second thing. Real repentance has relationship as the goal, not rescue. Right? Real repentance has relationship as the goal, not rescue. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 7. Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths that are among you, set your hearts on the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue from the Philistines. 
here's a problem that I think that we as Christians can fall into, anyone can, where we kind of use God as our good luck charm. Now, I'm not, this is not an anti-wear-a-cross-on-your-necklace message. Don't, I don't really care about that. Nor is it having you know, your special good luck Bible that you've had all your life or something. Like there, there are reasons to have sentimental things in our life that, re, that re, remind us of God's goodness. That's a good thing. But don't use God. Don't pull God out in the moments that you think, I really need him now, so God is my good luck charm. Right, if I've got God here, then, then all these problems are going to go away. That's what got Israel into trouble in the first place, remember? Remember a bit over 20 years ago, they were in battle with the Philistines. The battle was going badly. So what did they do? Let's pull out the God trump card. Let's pull out the good luck charm. Let's go get the ark. That's going to change it for us, right? If, if we get the ark out here and bring it into battle with us, it's going to fix everything. It didn't. 30,000 people died. The ark got stolen. We can't use God as a good luck charm, as though he just serves us and our purposes. Samuel got it right when he said to them, listen, if you really want to set things right in your relationship with God, then just worship him. Just worship him. Just make him the centre of everything that you're about. And yeah, look, God will rescue you. He does. That's what God does. He's amazing at it. He's been rescuing us ever since we were born into this place, right? Ever since we were created in the garden, God's been rescuing us. He's really good at it. But, but real repentance doesn't treat God like he's just the rescue plan. This last week I had to go away and do a, a couple of days of training and it was all about um, working safely at heights when you're in an emergency situation. And um, we had to make up rope lines and connect to them and add sail off things. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but our trainer kept on saying, before you get onto a roof with, with a crew of four, five people, all getting onto roofs and doing stuff together, fixing things and whatever, he said, before you get on there, before you even think about getting on that roof, you need to have planned your rescue. All right? What if something goes wrong up there? What are you going to do then? What if someone falls over or falls off the roof? What are you going to do then? You need to have a plane in place. The problem is, in real life, we often treat God like he's just our rescue plan. When things go wrong, I'll call on him. Right? God, if you can get me out of this, I promise. And we make all sorts of strange deals with God over it. Real repentance is not about treating God like he's just a rescue plan. Real repentance has the goal of relationship. I want to know you and I want to worship you. I want my whole heart to be yours. In chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, we had read that Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and they camped at a town called Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek, it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
says the Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield that day. And when the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark out. Right? You can see where their heart was, right? God's a good luck charm for us. He's just our, our backup rescue plan. Things went very poorly. 30,000 dead. The ark gone. The country in grief. They, they weren't pursuing God as their relationship. They were pursuing him as a, a backup rescue plan. Here's the third thing I want you to notice about this, this chapter. Real repentance is serious about confession. Verse 4 in chapter 7, have a look at it. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 4. It says that the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Now let me just explain that for a moment. Um, in the Philistine worship system, there was a, a male and female deity. And the Baal is a, the male version of their false god and the Ashtaroth was a, a female version of their false god. And they had different types of symbols, you know, statues and, and wooden posts, sort of like a totem type post type of thing. Um, and they were called Baals and Ashtaroths. It seems that the Israelites had started erecting these Baals and Ashtaroths all over their townships as well. This was sort of like then, you know, almost having a backup plan for a god that might help them. Well, if our one true living god that brought us out of Egypt fails, then we'll have a backup plan. We'll have these other gods, right? And so Samuel had said to them, if you're serious about worshipping the one true god, then get rid of the backup plans. Get rid of the other things that you worship. Get rid of the other things that you are drawn to. So Israelite, the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtaroths and only worshipped the Lord, verse 4 says. Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. And when they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. We'll come back to that. And they fasted that day. And there it says they confessed. Look at their confession. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judges the Israelites at Mizpah. I want you to notice with confession two important things though. Um, when you talk about confession, it does have a word component, the things that we speak, the things that we say, but it also has an action component. So have a look at verses 5 and 6 again. Samuel said, gather all the Israelites at Mizpah, I will pray the Lord on your behalf. And when they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water, poured it out in the Lord's presence. That was a symbol. You know, we, we still say it today where we say, oh, I poured out my heart to someone. All right? This is a sense of an, an emptying out. I really just came clean, I poured out my heart to them. And so there's this symbolic nature that the people gathered water and they poured it out before the Lord. They were pouring themselves out before him. And they said, after fasting, we have sinned against the Lord. 
they spoke out with words their confession. This is what I have done. And I have done it to you, Lord. Alright? So there's the word component that's so important in confession. But there's also an action component that's really important here. Back in verse 4, have a look at it. The Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtaroths and only worshipped the Lord. It's one thing to say, I've done the wrong thing and then keep all the Baals and the Ashtaroths there. I've done the wrong thing but then not change any action. Right? That's not repentance. It takes word and action. That's what real repentance is about. Words and actions together. And it's one thing to say, oh, I've, I've done the wrong thing. And maybe the loving kindness of our God, his faithfulness that goes on for generation after generation, we might think, well, you know, he'll forgive me. He'll forgive me. God says, no. Yes, your words are so important to me. In confession, words are important. You must speak that out. But so is action. Come before the Lord and cut down the Baals. Cut down the Ashtaroth. Cut down the things that we've started to accumulate in our life that are distracting us away from our one true heart's worship before the Lord. Alright, here's the fourth thing. Real repentance is about leaning on the solid rock of God's help, not your best intentions. So have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 7 again, verse 7. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, they uh, marched up towards Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. You and I would have been as well. The Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord. Right, don't, don't stop worshipping here at the moment for us. Don't, start asking for, don't stop asking for help so that he might save us from the Philistines. And uh, the Samuel took a young lamb and offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offerings as the Philistines approached the fight against Israel. So there's a worship service going on. The, the enemies are marching and storming into their worship service. Right? Samuel is offering sacrifices. The people are pouring out confession. Can you, can you imagine the situation? Right? We're in, we're in a, a, an awesome worship time together. And there's an army coming in to crush us. They're in the car park. And the people are saying, don't stop preaching, Samuel. Don't stop praying. We're confessing. We're here. Call out in desperation to the Lord for us. And we read here that the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines. I wonder what that was. He thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Right, there was a worship service going on and God was dealing with it. And then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way. Afterwards, it says in the text, so after all of that was done, after the battle was over, after the worship service was finished, 
Afterwards, Samuel took out a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, explaining to the people, the Lord has helped us to this point. And then the Philistines were subdued. Right here in this story, we just have a single stone. Last week we had 12. This story is just one. Samuel selected a single stone. He erected it in a field. Right in the location of God's defeat of the Philistines. And more importantly, it's right in the location Plan B. All right. A name was given to the stone. Ebenezer. Ebenezer. It literally means stone of help. That's the meaning of that word. And he explains to the people why is it called stone of help? Because up until this point in time, he said, God has helped us. He has helped us to this point. That name, Ebenezer, does it, does it seem familiar to you? I'm not talking about Ebenezer Scrooge and the you know, ghost of Christmas past or anything. Do you recall the name of the town 20 years earlier where Israel had tried to use the ark as a good luck charm? where there had been 30,000 soldiers slaughtered. Right? You remember? It was a little town, and the town's name was Ebenezer. Have a look. Chapter 4, verse 1. You can look it up. The Lord has helped us to this point. had a very different meaning 20 years earlier. 20 years earlier, they, they met at a town, Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us to this point. And they brought out the good luck charm. They, they threw the God card at the situation. And it really was, wasn't it? The Lord has helped us to this point. Then there was 20 years of wandering again, 20 years of aimlessness. But the Lord had provided another Ebenezer, another marker, another moment in time The Lord had covered the shame of their failure and had erected a new reminder. A stone, this time of victory, not of defeat. And he'll do the same for you this morning. He's done the same for us. All of our failure, all of our shame, all of our loss, all of our sin has been dealt with in full. And a new stone stands for us today. And his name is Jesus. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honoured by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, 
a chosen and honoured cornerstone and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This morning, I want you to know, I want you to be able to walk out here this morning and know this for sure. Your shame, your failure, your sin, it can be and is erased in the work of Jesus Christ this morning. Come to the chosen cornerstone. Israel had their first Ebenezer. It was a place of failure. But God erected a new Ebenezer. God stood a new stone and said, this is your stone of help. This is the point to which God has helped you come. And he wants to do the same for us this morning. Lay your sins and failures at his feet. And in Christ, who is your new Ebenezer, your new stone of help, your new marker to say, to this point, God has brought me. He replaces all of the old Ebenezers, the old places of shame, the old places of defeat, the old places of sin, replaced with the living stone, Jesus. So here's the summary. Real repentance begins with a longing for God, and that's, that's maybe right where you need to be this morning. Not sure about the story of this last week or this last month or this last year, or maybe it's been much longer for you. But real repentance begins firstly to say, I simply long for God. Is that your heart this morning? If it is, there's a moment right now where you can just pause. Say, God, I long for you. I've missed you. My relationship with you has been broken. And I long for you. He's not far away from those who seek him. Step two. Real repentance has relationship as the goal not rescue. If you've been one of those people who've been making bargains with God, God, if you can just come to my aid, can you fix this? Can you help me? God, are you my lucky, my lucky charm? Then stop right now. And as your heart longs for him, just tell him, God, I want a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to find you as my delight. I want my heart to respond to you when I see you and just my heart skips a beat. Step three, real repentance gets serious about confession. If that is you this morning, you're saying, I long for God, I long for a relationship with Him where I'm living with Him in worship, then the next step is to simply take some time right now and tell Him, God, I've sinned against you. I've, I've hurt you. But don't let it stop there. Your words are the beginning. But then take some time, even now, write a list. What is it that I need to deal with? Maybe it's a, a, another fractured relationship with another person that I need to go and work with. Maybe it's some objects in your life. Maybe it's some practices in your life. 
But there's something that you can say, it's not just my words this morning, Lord. I want to get rid of the bales and the asteroids that I've erected. Help me do that. Which leads us to the fourth point. Real repentance is about leaning on the solid rock of God's help. Not just your best intentions. It's not just a sense of going, I'm going to try real hard to turn over a new leaf here, God. We need more than that. Not just about turning over a new leaf. We need a new heart. We need a new saviour. And that saviour is Christ. Not ourselves. Not Not your willpower. Not your best intentions. So real repentance is about leaning in onto the solid rock of God's help. That new Ebenezer that he has created for us. That living stone that he has erected for us where we come to him and all our sin and our past shame, our past failures can be all left there. The old Ebenezer dealt with. The new Ebenezer is our help. So let's lean in on him. Real repentance. It's difficult. But God is there. Remember what Peter said? Anyone that comes to him will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that in Christ we have this new Ebenezer, a living stone, one to replace all the failures of the past. And Lord, we have so many. Lord, help us to take real repentance seriously, where we long for you. And Lord, place that longing in our hearts, Lord. Open our hearts and our our eyes to, to hear you, to see you and long for you so that our relationship with you might be restored. We might worship you alone. Lord, help us to be bold in our confession, not just with our words, but also with our actions. And that we would rest on what you can do now, what you have done in Christ. Lord, strengthen us for the days ahead, we pray. You have been our help thus far. You will be our help for eternity. So to you we turn for your glory and for your honour. Amen.